0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today I have the privilege of talking with Dr. J. Todd Billings. Dr. Billings is the Gordon H. Gerard Research Professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Dr. Billings. It's great to be with you. You know, I had the privilege of visiting with you in your school, Western Theological Seminary, um, some months ago when I was speaking in town, and I'm so glad you've now come to Birmingham. You'll be speaking at Beeson Divinity School and here at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham where we're recording this podcast, so it's an honor to have you with us down south. I've been looking forward to visiting, so... Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I thought it was interesting that you began your Christian life as a Baptist and have, uh, let's say, evolved, is that the right word, (laughs) into the Reformed Church in America. Talk about that pilgrimage.
1: Yeah, well, I'm tremendously grateful for my Baptist roots and my Baptist upbringing. I grew up in a Baptist church that really emphasized global mission and local mission, and so we would often have missionaries speaking at our church, staying in our home, and also a lot of uh, scripture memorization. Uh So, I mean, I think sometimes I was motivated just by the candy and various (laughs) rewards, but I really tremendously appreciate all the scripture memorization that I had in my upbringing and so many people coming along and um, discipling me um, in that way. I think that the pressure point for me came, especially when I went to college and I went to Wheaton College and discovered um, more about the broader Christian tradition and also just the roots of things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and we never said creeds Mm. um, growing up, and I didn't see anything particularly to object to, though, you know, the descent into hell sounded pretty (laughs) suspicious. I found my faith really growing as I found out about these broader aspects of the faith. But at least in my particular Baptist church, I know different Baptist churches are different, but... We had kind of a tradition of non-tradition. If you say the word tradition or Christian tradition, it's almost always used in a pejorative sense. Mm. So, you know, there's the word of God and then there's traditions which inevitably distort the word of God. But I found myself in a place still valuing the word of God and the Mm. preaching and the emphasis upon mission but also finding that some traditions actually were helpful in helping me to dig deeper into the Word of God. Mm. And I had friends who grew up even in my Baptist church who some of them went away from the faith in different directions, and I felt like actually some guidance from tradition is a really, really helpful thing, that we can't even be biblical on our own, that we need, in a sense, the best of the tradition of, of the church in order to do that. So I really came to be at home, in first in Presbyterian and then the Reformed Church in America, there's not too much theological difference there in that there's a connection to the historic church, to the Nicene Creed, to the Chalcedonian confessions about who Jesus Christ is. And there's a connection to historic creeds from the Reformation. Mm. But there's also a sense that we are always reading scripture anew. The Spirit is still speaking and so scripture is the final authority, scripture is the source, but we're not just completely left on our own um, as we approach scripture. So that's that's mm. kind of why I ended up with yeah. that pilgrimage.
0: Say a little bit about your, your academic pilgrimage. You were at Wheaton College, then you went to Fuller Theological Seminary for your Master of Divinity, and then on to Harvard Divinity School for your doctoral work. So that's an interesting pilgrimage. Uh, Kansas Baptist, Wheaton College, Fuller, Harvard.
1: Yeah, it's not a very well-trod path. (laughs) When I was at Wheaton, well, there were a number of reasons of why I ended up going to seminary and to Fuller, but one of the big ones was just my love for cross-cultural ministry that I Mm. found when I was at Wheaton. I did a six-month internship in Uganda working with the Church of Uganda, the Anglican Mm. Church there, And I was planning at the time of probably going on for a PhD in philosophy, but it was actually, there were so many beautiful things about the church there, but then there were also problems, like theological problems that I came across in ministry. And it occurred to me, there's there's nothing that I could commit my life to that would be both more of service, but also just intellectually stimulating, than mm. reflecting for the ministry of the church. Mm. And so that's what led me the direction of seminary. And after looking at several seminaries, I ended up at, at Fuller. I worked very closely with John Thompson, who's yes. a Reformation yeah. historian, and also with Miroslav Wolf, who was there mm-hmm. at the time. I was his yeah. TA and yeah. and worked with him quite a bit. So after being there, I was still actually interested in possibly going back overseas, but with a PhD. So I decided I'm going to go ahead and do my PhD. And um, it was really a scholar named, an Anglican scholar named Sarah Coakley, who drew me to um, Harvard. And it was the combination of just a very sharp analytic mind and thinking through theology and systematic theology and a great love and respect for the, especially the ancient Christian traditions. So the church fathers and um, those, those
0: things. Now, one of the themes in your scholarship, I think this maybe came from your work uh, as a student at Harvard, particularly on John Calvin related to the question of union with Christ. What does that term mean? Union with Christ?
1: Well, it's a term that gets at a central feature of Christian identity, who we are as Christians. Are we just people who believe in Jesus, and because we believe, we're going to heaven someday, um, but that's just sort of an aspect, a small aspect of who we are? Um, or is it a richer vision like we have in the Apostle Paul, where our very identity is to be adopted children of God united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, and that that identity actually frames the gifts we receive in the gospel, frames justification and forgiveness and the new life and sanctification that we receive in the gospel. So it's in many ways, it's a, it's a big category. It's a broad category that includes so much about um, the gifts we receive in salvation. But uh, ironically, it's often a missing category, I, I think, in the Christian community as well. Um, we sometimes just want to go straight from, you know, we have faith to you have forgiveness, so that means you're going to heaven. Um, but the question is, who are we? Mm. Who are we in the meantime? We're people who have been united to Jesus Christ, as death and resurrection, who have been united to one another in the body of Christ, who have been adopted, Paul says, but we're awaiting our adoption. And so um, I think it's been enriching just even to my own spiritual life to dig deeper into those biblical images um, related to union with Christ um, and giving a more dynamic sense of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ.
0: I remember reading Paul with that question in mind, and all those uh, prepositional phrases, in Christo, in Christo, yeah. Yeah. over and over, I don't know how many times, but dozens, scores and scores of times, he uses that as a central motif. However, some people get very nervous with that kind of language, uh, and particularly with reference to mysticism which is another big, big term. We could spend a whole podcast talking about what is mysticism, but there are dangers, I'm sure, with some forms of mysticism. How would you respond to that question about union with Christ and mysticism?
1: Yeah, well, as you said, the term mysticism is used in quite a few different ways. Um, John Calvin himself speaks about a mystical union that we have with Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, and that in a sense, our core identity um, becomes united to Christ in this sense. Um, but I think that at, at, that Calvin has some good instincts here. That mysticism does not mean just in our head or having some elaborate experience that has nothing to do with the life of the world. Um, for for Calvin, as he unpacks this union with Christ, it is always connected to love of neighbor, um, communion with others. This is one reason why he did not um, endorse a private celebration of the Lord's Supper. Mm. Be- to, because in order to have koinonia or communion with Christ, you have to have communion with one another. You can't just have this, you know, soul monastic. Um, um, united to God in this separate experience, but much more um, this experience of union with Christ by the Spirit is connected to the community, is connected to love of neighbor, and even love of the most vulnerable.
0: Yeah, in the 19th century, a lot of Calvin scholars were concerned to find out what's the central teaching, the central dogma of Calvin's theology. And many people proposed, and many people today would still say, I think, it's predestination, it's election, the sovereignty of God, something like that. Uh, You seem to zero in on union with Christ, but certainly not to the detriment of these other great themes. Can you say how they are organized or balanced in Calvin's mind and your thinking?
1: Yeah, well, I think that union with Christ is central, but it's not a central dogma in the sense that he comes up with this doctrine of union and then he deduces everything else from that central dogma. Mm. And likewise, um, Calvin definitely does not come up with a doctrine of providence and then deduce other things, everything else from that, or a doctrine of predestination and deduce everything else from that. He's very exegetical. Um, mm. In his approach, and so his whole his whole program, as he talks about it early in his career in 1539, 1540, when he has his um, second edition of the Institutes, and he starts his comment, writing of um, commentaries, um, is to have lucid expositions of Scripture in his commentaries, and then in places where he needs to go in a lot more mm. depth. Like about the person of Christ or about the atonement or things like that, he will put those. He will organize those together in a series of commonplaces in um, the Institutes. And so, the the, the Institutes is not um, meant to be just a series of reflections where one topic sort of causes or leads to another it's all exegetically rooted and it's all rooted back into his commentaries. So when I teach a course on Calvin, um, of course we read from the institutes, but we read quite a bit from the commentaries. We read, you know, from his pastoral works and, and, and so on, because it's all, um, interconnected in that way. So, um, I guess, I think it's, I think it's helpful to, just to note that, in terms of speaking of salvation, um, um, Calvin thinks that union with Christ is central. He says it's because it holds within it justification and sanctification and the work of the Spirit. It's like it's like the big tent mm. under which all sorts of other, even specific and even you know at times polemical discussions take place under that. But if you lose the sense of the big tent, then you've lost a lot.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the places, it seems to me, in Calvin's theology where union with Christ comes to the fore is his Eucharistic theology. Yeah, I know you've been very interested in that whole question of the Lord's Supper. What is it? How do we celebrate it? What does it mean for us as believers in Christ and for us as a community of faith, as a church? Uh, How does one encounter Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper, in word and sacrament? Yeah, I think that...
1: For Calvin, Jesus Christ has promised to be present in word and in preaching, Um, and it's the same word who is present in, in a sense, a sacramental form um, in the sacraments of um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the underlying logic of what holds it together is union with Christ. Now, Kevin does some peculiar things. Um, um, On the one hand, he wants to say that you can have, you can feed upon Christ and have the kind of feeding upon Christ that John 6 talks about, even apart from the Lord's Supper. Um, On the other hand, he wants to say that the Lord's Supper is not just about, you know, a remembrance of Christ's work or even a remembrance of what Christ has done in us um, in in the past, but it's a nourishment um, um, on Christ. And so, uh, some some folks, particularly when I was at Harvard, were you know pretty annoyed by this. I mean, how can you say that the Lord's Supper is important if you can actually feed upon Christ um, apart from the Lord's Supper? And I think that Calvin's solution to this is to say that in a sense, the Lord's Supper is an icon of the gospel. It is, it shows us what the center of the Christian life is. Um, and it doesn't show it by being something totally other than the preached word. <laughs> no, rather, um, just as the preached word, um, it holds forth Jesus Christ to, to us, crucified and raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, and, um, leads us into this union with this same Christ, um, and so there's a sense of in which the Lord's Supper involves um, a celebration and a recognition of both forgiveness of sins and new life, both justification and sanctification. And you know, preaching should involve mm-hmm. that as well. Um, and so it's a way in which God has actually provided an instrument for bodily creatures like us. Mm to know of God's covenantal love. And, I mean, Calvin thought that even before the fall, there were sacramental signs that um, in the tree of life, that God gives the tree of life because he says bodily creatures like us just won't be convinced of his love unless we have bodily signs. Um, And so um, then when we have the Lord's Supper, in the christian life it's it's a restoration of that relationship we've god we 've had in Eden, and even you know higher than that, since Christ is the second Adam and and higher it's um, it's a feeding upon life itself um, in Jesus Christ, who is the temple and his light and you know all these biblical images center in on Jesus Christ, and union with Christ points like a funnel toward you know how to access those biblical images and how to um, how to feed upon them in a sense.
0: You know, we're Americans, and so we're interested in everything that's utilitarian and pragmatic. And the big question when uh, we think about something like uh, the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper is how? How can this be? How does this happen? What are the mechanics of it? Well, Calvin uh, doesn't really fully answer that maybe to our satisfaction, but he gives a stab at it in an interesting way. I wonder if you would comment uh, in book four of the Institutes, he has this language about our hearts being lifted up into the heavenly sanctuary, and they're communing with Christ. There is a real spiritual presence of Christ that it happens in this way by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said. Right, right, Say something about how how do we talk about that?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to say, like you mentioned, is that it's it's a mystery <laughs> but some of the question is is it a is it a biblical mystery <laughs> is it a mystery that brings us deeper into the biblical narrative and um i think that some of what calvin is he's calvin is getting at several things um one is he doesn't want an emphasis upon the real presence of christ at the supper to lead to us being fixated upon objects. So we're just fixated upon the bread, we're fixated upon the cup. Um, In fact, he thinks that if we're not paying attention to other people, um, then we're missing the point. Um, um, If there's any, if there's a sort of high point in Calvin's... Eucharistic theology when a, when a congregation celebrates. It's actually much more in the table fellowship and the sharing with one another, um, the koinonia of the the bread and the wine that we share in Christ as we share um, with, with one another. Um, but this sharing is also one that um, it's of Jesus who is in heaven. He has gone before us um, what, what do we know about heaven? Well, the main thing we know is that Jesus is there. Mm. <laughs> and if we are to long for heaven and to ache for heaven, we need to orient our affections upon Jesus. Now, at this point, I'm riffing more on Calvin <laughs> than just going with Calvin. But there's certainly a sense in which, um, as the as the Reformed tradition and Calvinist tradition um, develops this theme... Um, there's a real sense of ache and anticipation for heaven that um, comes alongside um, Calvin's view here. In fact, um, I mentioned in a book I have coming out that the Song of Songs um, becomes Mm -hmm. one of the most preached upon texts in Mm -hmm. a lot of um, Reformed circles with the Lord's Supper, that um, this is a foretaste of our the foretaste of the wedding feast, um, mm. of our beloved, of our of our spouse. Um, and so I think that there's a way in which, on the one hand, what Calvin says about our hearts being lifted up to heaven, it teaches us something about heaven, mm. that heaven is going to have bodies, it's going to have other people, it's not just ethereal, and it's going to be centered on Jesus. Um, but then also with the lifting up to heaven, um, it gives us a sense that um, we are in an in-between time. You know that um, we pray, "Your will be done um, on earth as it is in heaven." We're we're not there yet, and so it it does give us, I think, a proper both delight and ache. Mm. The Lord's Supper should make us hungry. Mm. Um, it, it should nourish us, but also make us make us make us hungry and. So um, so I think, you know, from what I've said, Calvin would, you know, explicitly agree with some and some of it I'm sort of riffing off of um, um, and that you've seen and that you see developments of later in the Reformed tradition. But I think that's actually a really rich way to speak about the Lord's
0: Supper. You mentioned your new book. It's titled Remembrance, Communion, and Hope brand new from erdman's press so can you say a little bit more about it
1: yeah the book was it's centered around a wager for um congregations especially for leaders of congregations and the wager is that a renewed theology and practice of the lord's supper can lead to a deeper embrace of the gospel itself now you know i'm using a lot of theological words there and um You know, it may just sound like um, I'm just trying to convince people, oh, celebrate the Lord's Supper more often and everything will be better. That's not what I'm saying, Um, though I think actually a more frequent celebration for many congregations would be a very good thing. Um, But it's it's exploring the notion in Calvin and the later Reformed tradition that the Lord's Supper is an icon of the gospel and that we can actually – Um, live into an embrace of the gospel that is deeper and wider than many views of the gospel that are prominent in our day, where the gospel is just forgiveness or just a new ethic, and that the Lord's Supper can provide an entryway, a pathway for that. So um, yeah, that's the central, the central thesis and direction of the book.
0: I want to shift focus just a little bit and ask you to say something about your own physical health, because a few years ago you received a very unwelcome diagnosis of cancer, and you've been very upfront to talk about that as a Christian, as a theologian. Uh, You've written a book about it, uh, Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ, came out in 2015. Uh, Talk about that whole issue, uh, your illness and also your faith. Well, it's been
1: something that, um, as I have come to terms with um, my illness, which puts me in a fairly unpredictable um, situation, um, it's an incurable cancer. Um, I'm tested every three months. I'm still on chemotherapy, though at this point I'm on a lower lower regimen of chemotherapy. Um, than I was before just trying to keep our the cancer numbers um, stable. Um, but I've tried to use this as an opportunity to explore for myself and for others in ministry um, how Scripture speaks into situations like this, um, particularly in suffering that doesn't seem to make sense. Um, this mm. cancer didn't come from anything I ate or was mm. exposed to, or, you know, uh, it's it doesn't seem to be, you know, retribution for anything I did.
0: Um, it's inexplicable in that yeah,
1: way. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways it would be a lot easier if there was an explanation. Mm. Um, and I certainly went through a phase where, I wanted somebody to blame, even if it was just myself. That would be easier than just to have it as an open question. Um, but um, yeah, I think one thing I'm convinced of is that um, cancer patients, others who are suffering from illness, those who are dying, have much to teach the rest of the Christian community. And we often pray for people when they go into the hospital, and we should, but. Um, rather than just praying for them to leave the hospital, in a sense, we should be praying that the Spirit is active through them and is even speaking through their weakness, because God likes to speak Hmm. through situations like this. And um, so, you know, I've been really ministered to, as I've gotten to know others in the cancer and community, others who have died, um, as I've walked The path with them. And in our society um, today, we tend to push death to the sidelines. I mean, we have it on the newspaper headlines and um, in movies and the like, but it's not a real life concrete experience that reminds us on a daily level yes, you know, I will die. Yes, you will die. we tend to live as if we don't have these limits. And I think that's, um, that's a loss. That's a loss actually for our, our faith, um, as, as well. And so in a number of different ways, I've sought to just, yeah, see what the Lord is teaching me, see what I'm, um, where I'm called to, um, as I, as I live with this, um, cancer, and yeah, I'm grateful for the for the days and months that I have. So,
0: You're speaking to a number of pastors who work with people in all kinds of illness, including cancer. If you could say one thing to pastors about how they can best shepherd others who suffer from cancer and other kinds of diseases we have no control over in some ways, what would you say to them?
1: If I could say one thing, I think it would be that the cancer patients and others suffering from serious illness don't need their illness explained. Um, They do want people to go along with them. They do, I think, really long deeply to hear the words of Scripture, especially the Psalms. Mm. Um, But if you have a really neat and tidy explanation for the problem of evil. Um, Save it for another time. And, you know, everyone is different as they go through illness. And so pastors need to be responsive to that. Um, But in a sense, just sit with the person long enough to find out where they are in, in response. And if you have a default mode, I would say go to the Psalms.
0: My guest today on the Beeson podcast has been Dr. J. Todd Billings. He teaches Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, one of the leading Calvin scholars in our country today. And we are honored to have you with us in Birmingham and at Beeson. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your life and your thoughts with us. It's great to be here.